Welcome to the Business Case for Women's Sports, where we explore every corner of the women's sports industry, from the field to the front office. I'm Caroline Fitzgerald, and I'm here to prove that it's good business to be in the business of women's sports. So let's get after it. Our guest today is Kelsey Trainer. Kelsey is a lawyer, producer, and writer who currently serves as in-house counsel and head of business and legal affairs for Abrams Media, the national media company that was founded by Dan Abrams, the chief legal correspondent for ABC News. As a two-sport collegiate athlete and former college coach, Kelsey often writes for a number of publications regarding issues related to collegiate athletics and equality in sports. She can be seen and heard on NPR, the British Broadcasting Channel, and more. Welcome to the show, Kelsey. Hey, thanks for having me. Big fan of uh, goals here. Thank you. Well, I am definitely a big fan of yours, and I feel like we have a lot of things that we need to unpack here today, but before we dig into anything... I need to start this podcast by giving some credit where credit is due. So Kelsey, I know you know this, but for our listeners, this is a really big moment for me because something you said in one of your tweets in August of 2020 was literally the inspiration for this entire podcast. So you tweeted, it's bad business to not be in the business of women's sports. And that tweet sparked something in me to create the show in a place that we could hear from leaders in the women's sports industry and prove and show that it's good business to invest in women's sports. So just want to give that credit where credit is due and say thank you. Well, thank you for, for doing this. It's needed and appreciated um, and to help kind of change the narrative. You know, I just kind of spew off some tweets all day long, hoping somewhere, some way, maybe some, I'll say something good. So I appreciate that. Well, you're being quite modest. You are a leader and thought leader in the women's sports space. And I know I'm speaking for a lot of people. And when I say that, we appreciate you. Okay, so today we are talking about the NCAA. And I feel like this conversation could go in a bunch of different directions. But to start, I'm going to give just a quick recap of what's been going on. So Right now, we are in the middle of the 2021 NCAA March Madness Tournament, and three days before the women's tournament started in San Antonio, Allie Kirshner, who is a sports performance coach at Stanford, shared comparison photos of what the men's weight room looked like in their bubble and what the women's weight room looked like in their respective bubble. And the men's weight room was huge with equipment that looked like it went on for miles. And the women's weight room consisted of a stack of yoga mats and a rack of dumbbells. So of course, the images went viral because they were so shocking to see. And it launched a series of other reports that came out about the other disparities between the women's and men's tournament experiences. So the women received subpar welcome bags, food, court branding, even COVID-19 tests. So it became clear very quickly that the NCAA March Madness tournament for the women was an afterthought, quite frankly. So with all of that being said, I'd love to start today by simply just tossing you the microphone and hearing your thoughts on everything that's come out with these vast differences between the men's and women's tournaments. Yeah. So listen, weight rooms, COVID tests, facilities, promotion, photographers, none of that is new, right? The disparity between the men and the women, but well in the world, right? But in the NCAA uh, kind of world, it's always been that way. It's always been happening and it's nothing new. 
Now, what is new is the combination, I think, of the age of social media and the new NCAA athlete who is not afraid to speak out. And that's exactly what happened. You know, Sedona Prince, who plays for Oregon, she posted the uh, weight room photo comparison on her TikTok, which has a huge social following. And you didn't have that maybe two years ago, four years ago, five, 10 years ago. And so the combination of the ability to see these things in real time, and then the NCAA athlete speaking out against it in a way that they never have before for fear of repercussions, that's what's new. And that's what I'm hopeful for, because guess what? The NCAA has never cared. We've always seen how they value the women's tournament. They package the TV deal for the women's tournament along with other NCAA championships, you know, for multi-million dollars where they go out and they sell the, the men's tournament to CBS for billions of dollars. So it's always been there. It's, it's not shocking. Um, I think what is shocking is maybe some people kind of coming around to realizing that it exists and it's always been like that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is another example of how social media is really changing the game and the landscape for women in sports. There's this heightened level of accountability now where people notice and a lot of credit to millennials, but really Gen Z, that generation for not being afraid to speak out and show how it is. And I think too, you see, you know, women my age and older, we're truly inspired by these young women and how they're speaking out because we maybe didn't have the people kind of, we, we have always had people who've inspired, who've changed the game, who've done the work, but we might not have had the same kind of voices speaking out in the way that they're speaking out. And so I'm excited, you know, as someone who's in my thirties to see these young women speaking out at such a young age, it's a really kind of inspiring, you know, like a second win for me in my thirties to, to keep fighting. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, another thing that I just find really frustrating about this situation is that the NCAA is a nonprofit organization that brings in over a billion dollars a year. And if you look at their website, they constantly tout and talk about fairness. It's like their main buzzword that they use everywhere. They say it over and over again. And on their website, it says, quote, the NCAA is committed to providing a fair, inclusive and fulfilling environment for student athletes and fans. And even in the first line of the letter from the office of the president, Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, he says, quote, on this point, nearly everyone can agree. All college athletes should get a fair shot at success. So the hypocrisy here is astounding. And I think that's the thing that's really most frustrating to me. So I guess back to your point, just about how this isn't new, but no longer can the NCAA put statements like that on their website and then produce the product that they did for the women's tournament and think that that's going to fly. I mean, that's the hope, right? Is the accountability aspect and not to kind of quote Brene Brown, but you know, this cancel culture or whatever you want to call it. I mean, the real key to it is accountability and Mark Emmert and the board of governors being accountable for these inequities. They've always existed. Now they're just being seen in, in a much larger kind of space um, and sphere. And there needs to be accountability. And whether that is through them losing their jobs or through some type of mechanism through Title IX. But there's issues with that, which I'm sure we'll get into in a minute. What a wonderful segue. So I think through all of this, the thing that really 
shocked me the most is that I learned that NCA is not bound by Title IX. So my first reaction, like a lot of people, when we saw these disparities was, this is illegal, they're violating Title IX, they're breaking the law. But in reality, they're really not, which actually you pointed out to me. So thank you for that. So before we dig into this more, because I know we'll talk about the intersection of the NCA and Title IX more, I'd love to just start at the basics. And if you could just educate us a little bit about Title IX and what it consists of. Yeah. So Title IX itself is a mere 37 words. Big shout out to Digit Murphy, uh, head coach of the Toronto Six, who does her 37 seconds because Title IX is only 37 words. But basically the, the language that's really important to us here is that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation and be denied the benefits of then it goes on to say, or subject to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So when we get into the NCAA part, that's going to be the important part. But at a basic level, Title IX is this legal vehicle in which colleges, because they receive so much federal funding, must provide equal benefits for men's and women's sports. There's an issue with Title IX itself because you know, normally when you have a law, you have some enforcement mechanism. And that's the main issue with Title IX is that there is no enforcement component to it. You have schools reporting numbers and statistics, but when those numbers and statistics do not match up and they're not equal, as they all are, you can look at all the public reports, there's really nothing to be done about it. The only way we kind of enforce it is through litigation, lawsuits, having athletes basically say, hey, our sport was forced to, you know, be dropped or, you know, we're not receiving the same amount of equipment. So, you know, Title IX itself is an absolutely important, wonderful legal vehicle for the enforcement of equality and equity, especially in the, the college sports space. But there's so many holes and gaps in terms of uh, what it means practically. Absolutely. And I think we're seeing this now. So can you talk about why the NCAA is exempt from Title IX? Because it is shocking. Again, I'll say it again, shocking to me that it is. Yeah, I mean, so the NCAA is a nonprofit organization that has fought very, very, very hard in the court of law, all the way up to the Supreme Court many, many times to exempt itself from anything having to do with Title IX. Uh, so the member institutions that make up the NCAA, they are subject to Title IX. They directly receive federal funding. You have this court case, NCAA versus Smith where the NCA basically argued that they were not subject to Title IX because they're not a recipient of federal financial assistance. Clearly there's arguments that the amount of benefits, kind of public subsidies that they get would count as uh, <laughs> federal financial assistance. But basically in that case, the Supreme Court held that dues payments from recipients of federal funded were not enough to be subject to Title IX. Um, so they're not a state actor. They don't, quote unquote, receive federal assistance. So therefore, they don't have to abide by the rules of Title IX. Every single member institution that makes up the NCAA does, but the NCAA itself has found a nice little looping hole to avoid any Title IX lawsuits. Many have been brought, but they've never been held to that standard. So the NCAA has this huge resource on their website about Title IX and educating the member institutions on it. So again, I just, the hypocrisy is just so confusing. And publicly facing, they want to have all the benefits that one would have to, you know, kind of be in a similar space as a member institution, federally funded. They're paid money by these colleges 
to do what they do. They negotiate these NCAA tournament deals, right? So how are they not benefiting to an exorbitant amount financially from publicly funded or places that receive federal financial assistance? The answer is it's a really tight, legal, nuanced line that quite frankly, in the future could go the the different direction. So this takes me into the next thing I'd like to chat about. So this is extra frustrating because the NCAA is clearly not very interested in being in the business of women's basketball. They're failing to equally promote and support their female athletes, but still they find many ways to govern their female athletes quite closely. And they also govern male athletes quite closely, to be fair. Um, But it's hard to find many ways that the NCAA actually benefits women and their female athletes, especially when you consider the rules around NIL, name and image and likeness, and athlete compensation. So these rules, if you dig into it, they really disproportionately impact female athletes since they deprive these athletes of capitalizing on their talents during the prime of their athleticism and while they have this platform and all these opportunities to play sports. So I would love to hear you speak a little bit about NIL and how these rules do impact female NCAA athletes. Yeah, so the NCAA loves to claim that a majority of their athletes go pro in something other than sports yet they want to limit, especially for women athletes who are less likely to go pro because of less opportunities, they limit the only time in their kind of athletic career where they could financially make any money off of their talent. And you just don't see this in any other space, whether that's in in college for other types of students, whether that be in art and music or the sciences or in the workforce, you just don't ever see this level of unpaid labor allowed. It's quite actually illegal. It literally violates every federal antitrust law and and antitrust laws are there to promote competition in the market, a free market, and to protect consumers from these anti-competitive business practices. That's exactly what this is. And then to add a step further, you're preventing somebody without the ability to bargain for something in exchange. Uh, You know, people will say scholarships, blah, 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 but that doesn't matter. When you have contracts, it's like basic law, kind of one-on-one, you have to have the ability to bargain for something. Um, And you're preventing them from bargaining away or, or being able to use their legal right to their own name, image, and likeness. And so it doesn't make sense legally. Again, the only way that it's been legal all these years is the NCAA going to either Congress or fighting in the courts to get exemptions from federal antitrust laws. And that's as it exists right now. That, that's the case. So now you see states stepping in because the NCAA has had you know 50 to 100 years to get this right. And it's past time. And so everything they've done recently has really just been to buy them time, which is why I'm glad that a lot of states are continuing on their state legislation to get name image likeness uh, laws in the books. Um, And, you know, the NCAA's response in terms of like, oh, well, how would we kind of govern all of these different state laws? They govern every single state of every school in every state, different, you know, workers' compensation stuff or, you know, different coaches, et cetera. There's no difference. It's absolutely a bogus excuse. And again, it doesn't make sense kind of in a practical standpoint and from a legal perspective as well. Yeah, you're completely right. And just looking at the numbers a little bit, back to what you talk about where the NCAA like says everybody has the chance to go pro. So only 21% of NCAA male players turn pro and 6.9% of female players turn pro. 
So uh, let's just use the WNBA as an example. There are only 144 roster spots available in the WNBA. So if a college athlete, a college basketball player is lucky enough to grab one of those spots, like that's wonderful and that's great, but they're also still not making a huge living by playing in the WNBA. So I just don't see the downside when the NCAA says they just want to create a great experience, support college athletes, this is a clear cut way that they can support college athletes and set student athletes up for success moving forward by allowing them to make money off of their talents in it. It's quite frankly alarming. The downside is that the NCAA would not be a recipient of some of those sponsorships and those deals and the student themselves would be. So it's the downside is that it's money out of the NCAA's pocket, uh, which they can't handle. You know, the the three to $4 million per year that Mark Emmert makes um, is just not enough. He's got to take that, you know, a couple thousand dollar deal from, you know, any of these NCAA women's basketball players right now that are absolutely crushing the NCAA tournament. Um, Again, because that WNBA is so limited in terms of the amount of uh, roster spots, you have players right now who could be capitalizing, whether with local or national partnerships, making money, getting experience in the business world and kind of understanding how these deals are done. You have the NCAA saying no, absolutely not. And then not only that, to just make matters worse and, and to really insult further, the NCAA themselves don't even go the extra step to try to get those deals for the women's game. Right. And that's exactly what we see in terms of the broadcast deals and the sponsorships and the amount of effort that's put forth in both. And that's not to knock. There's so many people on the NCAA women's side that, that do work, but this is totally to knock the top leadership of the NCAA because that's exactly where the problem lies. I agree. And you tweeted something maybe yesterday, Kelsey, about the difference in the budgets that were allocated to the men's and women's tournament this year for March Madness. And I think it was a $13.5 million gap between what the women were allocated and what the men were allocated. So somebody approved those budgets, like not necessarily on the, somebody took a look at both budgets and said, this is okay. Right. And, and, you know, their response to that was, was that it's scale, you know, that the men's tournament is bigger in comparison to the women. Great. Fine. That's a valid argument to an extent. 13.9 or $5 million, that in and of itself is not valid. And when you look at the scale, scale means if there's one person at the women's tournament, if there's 10 at the men's tournament, that doesn't mean that the women's tournament gets nothing, right? Like no photographers, right? So scale means it quite literally just scaled down. Doesn't mean that you don't get the same benefits and the same resources. And so that's the main issue, again, in terms of equality, equity. It's so common sense and that it, to most people that an NCA board of governors just came out um, saying they've had a vote of confidence in Mark Emmert and how he handled those inequities. It starts with all of them and ends with all of them. So of course, they're going to totally give the guy a vote of confidence because they themselves are, are still majorly benefiting. But to the rest of the world, and I think to a lot of more people are waking up to it, it's absolutely disgusting. I agree. So we've talked a lot about our frustrations with this situation. What is like the most frustrating thing for you, even this year with what we've seen or just over your time observing how the NCAA treats the female athletes? I mean, I think it's always going to be the inequality and the inequity for me, the hypocrisy. Sports to me are a microcosm of society. 
and the NCAA's views on women is a reflection of how corporations, businesses, governments value women everywhere. And what the NCAA has said to us these past few weeks is that you are not worth the same amount as men. Your value is less than men, financially, in the workforce, et cetera. So to me, that's always going to be the most frustrating thing. And, you know, here's hoping that there's something done in the future to change that. We talked a lot about frustrations, but you talked about this at the beginning. And I agree with something you said earlier about how there are some good things to come out of this as well with Gen Z speaking up and some of these differences and why this is going viral now. So wanted to ask you, what are the silver linings here with all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think like what we talked about before, the response, the voice, the awareness of the athletes themselves, the coaches, and even the media in some sense. You know, you've seen Don Staley, Tara Vanderveer, so many people speak out. You know, you have your ESPN, Sarah Spain, Jay Billis, basically everybody. I think it was on a late night show with Samantha B. I think she was even kind of touting it. Times have changed. And, and listen, women everywhere are no longer happy to be here, right? We're not happy for the breadcrumbs. We're not like, it's not like, oh, look, here's the breadcrumbs. Thank you so much for feeding us. No, we're not. We deserve it all. We deserve the investment, the coverage, the success, the failure, right? Someone's always like win with women. No, I want women to be able to lose the same way that men lose because they do it all the time and they keep getting hired. They keep getting new opportunities. And that's exactly what women deserve as well. It's literally just quite the same opportunity to fail, to succeed as men have. Absolutely. Okay, Kelsey, believe it or not, we've come to our last question today. So to close out the podcast every time, uh, I ask every guest why they believe that it's good business to invest in women's sports. But I'm going to ask it just a little bit differently today to tie it back to your original tweet that did inspire this show. So Kelsey, the NCAA is clearly not very interested in investing in their female athletes. So... Why do you believe it is bad business for them to not be in the business of women's sports? The NCAA is quite literally leaving money on the table. Brands, networks, fans, they want to consume, they want to watch. Corporations are becoming more socially aware in terms of advertising, at least, and where they put their products and where they put and market their products. And so you are missing out on a huge demographic, a purchasing demographic nonetheless, to the tune of, of billions of dollars. So again, I know we go back to it's, it's business 101. The more you invest, the higher the return. It's in every textbook across the nation, across the world, and it's really a simple formula. And so again, when it's put to, to women's sports, it just magically could never work. So I think that it's bad business in the sense that why would you leave money on the table that's there? Because it's there. There's no way that it's not there. And so to me, leaving money on the tables is pretty bad business, uh, just you know, from a really basic point of view. Yeah, and maybe that's money that we could use to build equal weight rooms or provide equal <laughs> or in the words of, Or in the words of Draymond Green, you know, tell women's stories because no one's trying to do that anymore. I hope that every listener can sense my sarcasm there. <laughs> It was thick. I think everybody got it. <laughs> cool. I, I usually use my uh, my sarcasm font, but you know that's hard to use. You know when speaking, so I had to make sure that you know that came across. 
So Kelsey, before we, we wrap things up completely, is there anything that you would like to share about or plug to our listeners? Yeah, recently, along with Power Forward, I launched a merch line, invest in women, pay women, hire women, kind of to change the narrative from the kind of risk associated with the, the bet on women to practical, literal action words of things that we can be doing, because I think that women are not a risk. There's no need to bet. It, it's a sure thing. And so put that out 100% of my proceeds, which is a significant amount, go to Black Girl Hockey Club. It's been really fun to see people kind of like wearing them and sporting it. And I think the goal and the hope with Power Forward is for that space to eventually take my name off the shop and to have it be a space where women in the sports space, not just, you know, the big name athletes can have a platform to put out product, to make money, to get their word and their brand out there. So that's kind of, you know, hopefully the plan going forward, but yeah, get your merch, support it, rock it you know, give back to Black Girl Hockey Club, which actually does those things. They pay women, they invest in women, they hire women. And, you know, it's decent looking too, so. Yeah, if you weren't going to plug it, I was going to plug it, everybody, because first of all, it's amazing. I have the gray pay women hoodie on its way to my house right now, and I cannot wait to rock it. But it is a really, really important shift in the vernacular, in the narrative around money and women's sports. It's not a bet. Like you said, there's not a risk here. This is a sound investment. (laughs) This is a good business decision. So it's been incredible to see. And I swear every single time I go on Twitter or Instagram, I see more people just rocking your gear because it's clearly rallying calls that the women's sports community and sports community can get behind. Um, So tremendous work on that. I just want to say kudos to you because it's a big deal. Yeah. Shout out to um, Simone who at Power Forward, who was the designer site builder. I mean, literally everything and Luke Bonner as well. Um, They just make it easy. And then again, Renee and, and Black Girl Hockey Club and, you know, letting me essentially kind of partner with them in the sense that, you know, this, this is where the, the money's going um, because they're amazing and fantastic, do fantastic work. Absolutely. We've come to the very end of our show. So I just wanted to thank you one last time for both coming on the podcast and for your leadership in this space. So thank you. Well, the feeling is entirely mutual and I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to the Goals Podcast, the business case for women's sports. Leave us a review, check out the show notes, and be sure to follow Goals on Twitter and Instagram for the most up-to-date content on the women's sports industry. And remember, it's simply good business to be in the business of women's sports.